Hello and welcome to the first of, who knows how many, Sour Popcorn Podcasts. A weekly show regarding all things entertainment related, including reviews. Right, so let's talk news. I know it's not recent news, but last week it was finally confirmed that J.J. Abrams will be directing Star Wars Episode 9. Honestly, I feel it's a really great decision to have J.J. come back. I feel we know where we are with J.J. Like with Colin Trevorrow, like he's done so little, whereas with J.J. we've got his style kind of noted down. We just, especially with Force Awakens as well, we know somewhat what to expect and I'm excited for it. Although it is strange how many directors are leaving, especially Star Wars, but more franchise projects. Yeah, if we look at the Batman just recently and also the Flash over at Warner Brothers, like you think they had Robert Zemeckis attached to that, then with the Flash and you think also with Batman, they had Ben Affleck looking to direct. It's really interesting to see how many people are just jumping off these projects. Like, is it to do with the pressure? Although Colin Trevorrow, who was originally going to do episode nine, um, he directed Jurassic World and is strange. I despise Jurassic World, so don't need to talk about that. And it's strange because like when Chris Stuckman did an interview of his new film, The Book of Henry, which Stuckman liked, but quite... I did not. (laughs) But it's not had a very warm reception. He did an interview with him, and in his interview, Colin Trevorrow said how there always needs to be fresh ideas in Hollywood and how we can't just keep doing remakes and reboots and franchises, how there need to be new films and ideas and original movies out there. And I found that interesting coming from the man who directed Jurassic World. Yes, a film that is such nostalgia porn, it literally slaps you in the face with headset night vision goggles. He has got no right to make claims about originality in Hollywood. And if he feels this way so strongly, why did he ever sign on to do a Star Wars film, perhaps the biggest franchise in Hollywood, to be most revolving around a single set of characters and to have the most studio interference that you could ever have? save for potentially a Marvel movie. Well, I feel like these films that are based in cinematic universes and these franchise films are very much, they they bring in a hired director where they just give them the script, they give them the cast and they say, go shoot these scenes. Whereas you get a film like Baby Driver where it's Edgar Wright's baby, it's his child, where he's fully in control of exactly what he wants to do. He does his own style, he does his own substance and stuff uh, like but that. I think, I think that can be argued against. Like When you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you've got James Gunn. He hasn't got control fully, but that's one of these people that can go up to Kevin Feige and I can say, I'm going to do it this way. There's going to be your things in it, but this is my movie, this is my baby, I've been nurturing this. And you can see very clearly when you're looking at things like Civil War or Guardians of the Galaxy, you can see it's a James Gunn movie as composed as opposed to the um, Russo Brothers movie. And I think with Star Wars, it would be great to see JJ hopefully be able to have some control like that. Although I'd say, like you said with James Gunn, Guardians of the Galaxy is very much its own thing, sort of in a separate bubble to the MCU, which is why it'll be interesting when they come in in, in Infinity War. Yeah. But because it was his new thing, whereas if it was an Avengers sequel or James Gunn did Civil War, it would be very much an MCU film yeah. rather than a James Gunn film, which is why one of the reasons why I'm excited for Taku Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, because exactly, he said yeah. while it's in this big continuity and it's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it is very much its own story with an ending. Yeah, my second most anticipated Marvel movie, in fact, it's got to be... Black Panther is number one, of course, but if we get back to Star Wars, of course, I feel um, 
I think it's only natural that they went back to JJ. Like, if we look at the recent Han Solo movie, the difficulties they had trying to find a director for that. And we even said repeatedly that we thought JJ would be the option that they would pick. And I feel really excited that they are. Although, with the Han Solo movie, I was very excited for Phil Lord and Chris Miller. But now they've just brought Ron Howard in. Ron Howard is known to just, like in Arrested Development, he just finishes people's projects and he just stands in so and he creates movies so people can keep the rights for it. And I obviously know that's a joke in Arrested Development. While he has made really good films, he just sort of seems like a stand-in hired director rather than it being his own vision. Yeah, there is no doubt about that. But I think at the end of the day, with characters like Phil Lord and Chris Miller, these are two really independent filmmakers and as we've been saying with the Marvel thing, you've got these studio heads like Kathleen Kennedy, you've got Kevin Feige, Zack Snyder when he was doing parts of Justice League for Warner Brothers, and that's why you need a director that's going to get on really well with these heads. Like, you know James Gunn has got a great relationship with Kevin Feige. JJ is going to have brilliant relations with Kathleen Kennedy. He made her a billion dollars with Star Wars The Force Awakens. He's probably going to do it again with Episode Nine, especially if Ryan Johnson does a good job of Last Jedi. But it's that's what you need in these pieces. We need someone who can not only get on with that head, but can make a great movie, which we know JJ can. With Phil Lord and Chris Miller, however, there's just such distinctive styles and different ways of doing things that I don't think it would ever have worked. And even if we had received the final product, I think ultimately we would have been disappointed with it. I wouldn't. Have, I don't think that we would have been disappointed in it because no one had any expectations for the Lego movie, but then they surprised everyone with how genuinely good that was and i feel like they're just handing these directors their scripts and not letting them do their vision whereas at least if we did have the final phil lord and chris miller film it may not have been the best on solo film but it would have at least been their visions rather than studios yeah exactly it's the um the parable of josh trank's fan four stick if you think about it i would much rather have seen josh trank's failure than the studio piece of crap that we got but at the end of the day what more can we really expect this is star wars it's like we've been saying it is the world's biggest studio franchise i think it's only really rivaled by james bond so to expect a director to have any real total creative control i think is just out of the question when it is this big and disney puts this much money into it although ryan johnson said obviously he's directing the last jedi ryan johnson said that disney pretty much left him alone for that one but that might have been because his vision was very in line with what disney were expecting what they wanted yeah. so that was probably why he was left alone and then maybe also just be the thing that kathleen kennedy is keen to keep on to what good director she's got left i mean if this becomes a growing trend with her as it is with like for instance Warner Brothers then Star Wars could be in real trouble not for the main trilogy but for these spin-off movies at least I mean we've got I know we've got at least another Obi-Wan Kenobi movie coming and who's going to direct that but I think regardless we're both really excited to see JJ come on we, he's been a filmmaker that as a trekker having watched 2009 Star Trek I've fallen in love with this man I've been interested and engaged by every film he's ever made and always on the lookout to see him make more Although Paramount Pictures aren't very happy with Abrams because they had a picture deal with him where they'll give him 10 million a year to work on new fresh films for them. And obviously he had about three years out with Force Awakens and then now 
he he's going to have another few years out for episode nine. And so Disney compensated Paramount with about eight million, but that's only one year. But then again, I don't think Paramount's in much of a position to complain. I mean, this is Star Wars. Like I've been saying, you can't beat Star Wars. Paramount can throw all the money and complaints in it that they want. But if they want JJ, Disney's going to get JJ. And I think it's also the fact that JJ is an amazing multitasker. I don't think there's anyone in Hollywood quite like him who can multitask. This guy was doing Westworld while he was working on Star Wars. He's doing so much. And I, I really think he could be getting on with things not to the greatest extent while episode 9 is going on, but he's still a man who can be working, and you know he's been working on some scripts. Yeah. Yeah, Like, he produces a lot of stuff. Like, even his studio, Bad Robot, I really like their marketing techniques of they have a mystery box, and they don't spoil what the film's going to be about. Like, the trailers give a general view and synopsis of what it's going to be. But like with 10 Cloverfield Lane, no one knew what was going to happen going in and then with the original Cloverfield no one knew what was going on yeah Bad Robot and of course 10 Cloverfield they really are the how should I put it the return of the viral video marketing campaign like no one knows what it was I mean no one knew what it was 10 Cloverfield Lane and then when it came it fucking came and I think it's something that's really commendable by that studio I think that's pretty much it for Star Wars though I think Honestly, we are all really excited to see what JJ is capable of doing. And we'll have a clearer idea, of course, after we've seen Last Jedi, which... I cannot wait. (laughs) Who can't? But something I can't wait for even more is just yesterday we received a trailer for writer-director Alex Garland's new movie, Annihilation. Oh, that's Natalie Portman in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, It's also got such... Characters, I mean, characters, what am I saying? Actors, as um, I can't even name their names. It's the lead lady from Jane the Virgin. Oh, it's just, oh yeah. It's been such a while since I've seen this trailer, like since last night, but it really captured me was the visuals. When you're looking oh, at the visuals in this film, brilliant. you do not want to be looking at the actors. Like, the wall of light in this trailer looked sensational. The second Natalie Holman touched it, I was my eyes were just off her. It was something you couldn't take your eyes off, and it reminded me of the sort of visual assault that you get in films like Two Thousand and One or Valerian or even Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was something that just I couldn't take my eyes off. Although, why I am glad they have an actress like Natalie Portman is they have all these special effects and it looks beautiful that you don't want to take your eyes off. But then they've also brought in an actress that can really act. Yeah, Natalie Portman is sensational if you're looking at films like Black Swan, Leon the Professional. Leon's her best film. No way it's Black Swan, my good sir. But regardless, I think Natalie Portman is going to be amazing in this role. I think it's going to be something that challenges her in a sense. While Black Swan was a physically demanding role, I don't think she's done something like this before, playing this kind of character. But I think that's something that Alex Garland, who was, for those of you who don't know, the writer-director of 2015's Ex Machina, and was also the writer of 28 Days Later, two classics to me, which you can't really argue about, but something he's amazing at in every single one of his films is bringing out characters. If you think about the, um, the robot girl from Ex Machina, she was sensational. The um, military colonel from 28 Days Later, he was absolutely chilling. And the way he just justified things with the amazing dialogue that Garland really comes out with, it makes me more excited for this film than anything else. 
I think the fact that it's also a source material, like based on a really quite famous book I've heard, it's going to bring in a lot of people. And I think this is going to be a film that really sneaks up on us and really quite surprises us. Because Ex Machina did very well critically, but I don't think it exploded at the box office. Whereas this one, especially with Natalie Portman attached, is I feel like it's going to do very well. Yeah, like back in 2015, like as loved as they were, like Oscar Isaac and Donald Gleeson, they weren't household names like they potentially are today, especially after Star Wars. But yeah. I think now that you've got some They're of these bigger Star Wars, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now that you've got some of these stars attached, you're going to get a lot bigger opportunities. I think in this movie for more people to come and see it. But I think more importantly, we're going to get more. How should I put it? Fame for Alex Garland. I think he's going to be able to have a lot more in his next movies. He's going to be able to make big movies. It's probably why he was able for this one, because Ex Machina was such a success. And I think as we see him develop as a filmmaker, we're just going to get bigger and bigger things. It's it's like Damien Chazelle, but better. <laughs> Although, going off Ex Machina with Alicia, Come with on. Alicia Vikander, what did you think of the Tomb Raider trailer? <sighs> I... Look, it's it's a video game movie. I, I've made several comments in the past about video game movies and my feelings of them. I don't feel this is the movie that's going to break the video game movie curse. Like, this was a trailer that didn't excite me. I thought it looked really by the numbers. And I understand you've got to try and pull in some of that game crowd, but they've just been pulling shots directly out of the game at this point, And it just didn't excite me. Like, there was nothing to it. Like, the... The Angelina Jolie films, say what you will about them, they're at least fun. Whereas yeah. this one is going for the dark and gritty 2013 game reboot and they've got Dominic West as her father. So clearly there is going to be some element of something, but it looks too CGI. Like the CGI looks really good, but, but when yeah. she's jumping towards the plane as the wings falling off down to wherever at the bottom of the waterfall it's far too battle of the five armies legolas is jumping up on the regular blocks just like super mario bros it's just it's not anything feasible or tangible it's just not realistic at all whereas if it was more like practical with indiana jones then maybe that would help get people more on board where well the director has come out and said that one of his main influences for the film and to pick up the project was indiana jones because he said he grew up on that so hopefully yeah, I think there's, there's clear passion here from the creators. I just feel it's not really the film that we're asking for. I think if we didn't have to base it on this video game so much, if we didn't have to retain the elements, if we even put it in the hands of the fans, I feel this would be something that you could almost compare to somewhat The Revenant. Like, if you've got a really kind of new face, I mean, nothing wrong with Alicia Vikander, but if we got a really new face in there, a talented director, and we made it something that was really quite brutal, but then potentially even more than R-rated, and you got, I mean, when the original 2013 Tomb Raider was coming out, people were getting really scared because there was a bit of a rape controversy. That was something that, while I was glad wasn't in the original game, really interested me, and something that I thought was dark and was daring for the franchise to try. It'd be yeah. great to see that in a movie. Yeah, because they put, they took liberties with the reboot, where they made it their own thing, whereas, like with the DCEU at the moment, they tried to make it dark and gritty, and while that works with Batman, it doesn't work so well with Superman, it doesn't work so well with Suicide Squad because it's supposed to be more fun. So that's why in the Justice League trailer, they're just trying to be a Marvel movie. Whereas I did respect the DCEU for trying to be separate and trying to be interesting, trying to be dark. 
now they've taken the wrong messages from audiences and now they're just trying to make a Marvel movie. Yeah, I, while I am probably the biggest uncelebrated fan of Man of Steel, it's honestly, I love it to pieces. I can agree that this dark and gritty tone is appearing in far too many films. Like you're just getting time after time again, films that think they are more adult than they need to be. Look at what we got with Power Rangers. It wasn't like, it wasn't the most dark and gritty film ever, but Jesus, they didn't like need to look like that in those armors. Just give them the campy, dreadful look. And Although Matthew Vaughan, the Kingsman director, has come out and said that he likes the fun and he likes the comedic side of Kingsman because he said the world's in such a difficult position at the moment where it sort of needs levity and it need and people go to the pictures to escape the stress and stuff so it it's good entertainment rather than everything having to be dark and gritty after bond like after the daniel craig bonds everything's just been dark and gritty whereas inspector they were adding in a few jokes yeah exactly i think kingsman is something i would much rather see than another tomb raider movie or any video game movie if i can be perfectly honest but now that i think we've discussed annihilation and as promising as the film that looks to be we have got to focus on what's now and what's right now is kingsman the golden circle yes manners maketh man and so we now go to our first review that we're doing on the podcast kingsman the golden circle first we're going to talk about spoiler free and then we'll do a warning and we'll say spoilers and if you haven't seen it already because quite a lot happens yeah considerable spoilers are on the way right so the basic the the basic plot synopsis is it starts off mm, soon after the last film and i would say maybe four six or so months there's at least been some time here yeah there has been some time for the characters to have more relationships like Exy with roxy then our best mates and also Exy's now with the princess yeah it's like really interesting to see the relationship between those two but i don't understand this is a swedish princess and she sat in a london apartment celebrating some dodgy teenager's birthday it really annoyed me who says romance is dead yeah yeah (laughs) shut up yeah it was a really great film it's nice to see tyron edgerton come out on top of his performance from the original kingsman he's now growing as an agent as the new galahad he's kind of settled into his role as one of the kingsmen but then disaster strikes when julianne moore's new villainous character poppy comes in and causes some havoc so what did you think of the film as a whole because it's it 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 surprised me with the bag that no the bad reaction that it's gotten like it's only 50 percent on rotten tomatoes i know you shouldn't look at the percentage you should look at the overall rating but it's only 50 percent on rotten tomatoes and people are really tearing this film apart yes look at the overall rating the percentage doesn't matter but yeah i agree with you i think the reaction that this film is receiving is really really unjustified yeah i understand it's a sequel and yeah it's not a superior sequel but this is still a really technically and technically well made a competent movie it does some really funny things great action is seen throughout and there's a story where you actually care about the characters that's something really rare for movies these days 
I loved seeing this film. You could tell Matthew Vaughan and everyone that was involved was having a blast making it. I really don't get what it's coming from it. It's maybe what are, what we're starting to call the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 paradox, where that, that was a film of 2014 where nobody had any expectations of what it was going to be, similar to Kingsman, and everyone loved it. 2 came out this year, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, as I'm trying to say, and that, would, that in my eyes was not as good. We knew what was coming, we knew what to expect from these characters, we'd seen that well before, and that was what we got with Kingsman. Yes, they try and introduce the Statesman, which is the new American cousins of the Kingsman in this movie, but it leaves very little to really be different. This is very much by the numbers. Characters return. It's no secret that Colin Firth does come back from this movie, and really, there's no real difference apart from his character in the first one. Yeah, he does go through some problems with his mentality, but... Really, by the end, the third act of this film, they are all back to how they pretty much were in the first movie. And that was something that annoyed me a little bit. Although something like with a lot of Vince Vaughn projects like Kick-Ass and now Kingsman, when it then comes to the sequel, because the first one was so well received and the story was coming from nothing to then becoming a superhero or becoming a spy, because those films start off realistic and then they get over the top towards the end, the whole point of those films with the character arcs is that the first ones end with the characters at the top. So then with a sequel, you can't really progress the characters. And I think that's one of the reasons why people aren't so keen on on the sequel, Golden Circle. I think there is room to progress characters on this level. Like, I think we're going to have to go into slight spoiler territory now, so you have been warned. There were great ways to progress this char these characters, and that would honestly be to have killed off more people. In this film, you do receive some characters from the first film, they do die. There is the death of my personal favourite, Roxy. Oh, Roxy. Oh, Roxy. She was Sophie so, needs so to be beautiful. She needs to be in more. But the fact that she did die, and Eggsy's best friend, Brandon, and the dog, JB. JB, oh, my friend. Drink for JB. <laughs> They all died, and it was very kind of... It felt like it came out of nowhere. Yeah, it like, really did. That's like putting Colin Firth from the first one, Harry's death, at the very beginning of the film, where you're not really in... You're, you hadn't gotten into it yet, whereas they could have really made Roxy's death emotional, and they killed all these Kingsmen, and they killed Michael Gambon, and it was only worth it for his final life. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> but that's what the point is that I'm trying to make. The fact that they kill off so many people, and it is just really, really underwhelming. I think if they had made this a little bit more of an emotional scene, especially with Roxy's death, you could have seen some real progression from Eggsy. In the first film, Eggsy is just doing this because he thinks it's going to be a cool job at the end of it. With this film, Matthew Vaughan had a real opportunity to do a very interesting revenge piece. He could have gone for this character Poppy and really shown something interesting. They could have even made it a symbolic thing, like he's trying to live up to the mantle of Colin Firth. Colin Firth could have dealt with Poppy in this situation, and he feels that he can't, and he's trying to rise to that mantle almost, but it wasn't met in this film. Although, like with all the Kingsmen dying at the beginning, it felt like it had the Man of Steel problem, where they just kill so many millions of people, obviously not millions in Kingsmen, but they just kill such a large amount of people where it no longer becomes emotional. 
Exactly, and you really do start to see that in this film. It's a growing trend in this Kingsman franchise. Like, Colin Firth does come back for this movie, but they've just completely, in a sense, removed all sense of worry you can have for any of these characters. They literally spend a five-minute scene where they show you exposition of how we can literally bring people back from the dead from a gunshot. Alpha gel. (laughs) Yeah, they do this twice in the film. They do it to Colin Firth's character, and they do it to Pedro Pascal's, and it's just... I understand this is a campy movie, and they're trying to recreate that campy style of the Roger Moore Bond movies, but it just removed any sense of worry. But one of the things that did work so well in the first one is it was campy, and it was cheesy, and it was funny, but it still had high stakes. That's why when Valentine shot Harry, everyone was like, what? How? But yeah. then just bringing him back cheapens that. Yeah, with this film, there would I felt no stakes in this entire film. Like... The only moment where I felt genuinely devastated is when the amazing character of Merlin, Mark Strong, gives an incredible performance in this movie, when he unfortunately died. It wasn't because the villain had done it. It was literally through his own fault and error. There was no... That was through Eggsy. Yeah, Yeah, there were stakes to this movie, but not on the level that there were of the first one. Characters did die, but it wasn't for this, and it didn't give you the same emotional feelings that it did in the first one. And that's something that I left the theatre just thinking... Oh, that could have been a t- done a tiny bit better. Although, that reminds me, when I saw it last night at View, you know how in View Mark Strong comes on and he says, hello, and he yes. tells people to turn off their phones? He went, um, in, in his Merlin voice, and he was like, hello, um, turn your phones off, else I will go all church scene on you, because this film does not need to be interrupted by your silly little phones. That is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I was... I was laughing my socks off. It was brilliant. I'd have paid good money just to hear Mark Strong say that. I just, he really is, for me, the standout performance in this movie. He was so He is funny. really the heart and soul of it. Yeah, and it's like, he's trying so hard to, like, stand and be this character authority. Remember your training, Exe, but there are just so many funny moments from him where you just can't help but fall in love with the character. Like, it was devastating because, like just after all the Kingsmen have exploded and then Eggsy's there pointing a gun at Merlin. Merlin's there like, only after the mission is done can you shed a tear in private. Yeah, that was a hell of a line from this movie. And there were some truly sensational scenes, like Mark Strong's death being one of them, but we can't go any further without discussing Elton John. There was a scene in this movie where Elton John came and screamed and I think I pretty much screamed at the sight of it. It was one of the greatest parts of the movies from such an unexpected person. I I loved Elton John's cameo. And, well, it was more than a cameo. I yeah. loved his part. He was a character. He mattered. And it confuses me when I, like, hear Mark Commode's review and he says how he thought it was going to be a cameo, a one-off joke, but then he just thought, when will it end? And I was really surprised by that because the whole way through, I thought it was hilarious. And like when the dogs are going at Harry and Colin Firth, and then Elton <laughs> John just comes, just comes so in and funny. just goes, Rocket Man! <laughs> Don't you ever see my movie again. But honestly, it was so, f- like, freshening for me. Like, there were very few new characters in this movie besides the statesman and the villain Poppy. It was really nice to see someone just come in like that and just, without even trying be able to make some really quite funny jokes and bring some great humour into it. 
the the best part of Elton John was probably when Poppy was doing that television broadcast. He was like, get out of my room. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing in my room? The repeated swearing from Elton John was hilarious at that point. I couldn't get enough of him. And sometimes in films, characters swear too much and it just doesn't feel natural. Whereas in this one, it feels natural because the dialogue is natural and it's not full of exposition. It's just, well... Julianne Moore does exposition. Besides that but... one alpha gel scene, this is a film that's yeah. really dialogue perfect. I think the characters in this film, while, how should I put it, imitations of their previous performances, not really as well done in some cases. <coughs> Excuse me. It was, The End of the Day was a great, great movie. I had a lot of fun watching this. There were problems, and I will admit, it was not the best of the franchise. It wasn't even the greatest sequel as it could have been. There could have been more done to it. But I still love this film. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Same. It was more of the same of the first one. And those action sequences, like when Taron Egerton jumped through that lasso at the end. Oh my god, I couldn't get enough of it. And and although with the Alpha Gel it really did not work for Colin Firth, even though I did sort of like what they did with the character with the butterflies. Yeah, that was an interesting it, turn, yeah. It did work with Pedro Pascal. Yeah, Pedro Pascal, he was a really, really underrated star in this movie, star of Game of Thrones and Narcos. He was really, really great in this movie. He did some competent action scenes. He was a really engaging character. He was the surprise villain of the piece. I went in thinking it was going to be Jeff Bridges who was going to Same. betray them. We had, we had money on it being Jeff Bridges. It turned out to be Pedro Pascal. I didn't see it coming. Only Colin Firth did. And honestly, he was great in this movie. And the best villains are always villains that see themselves as the heroes. And you see, apart, the bit that did annoy me is when he said about statesmen's market yes, share and the was, money. That was unneeded. But, but when he was talking about his wife, and then you just knew and understood exactly why he's doing it. Yeah, it was absolutely perfect to see Pedro Pascal do this role. And he shined for me, I think, more than most of the cast. Like, Channing Tatum in this movie. <laughs> I, I'm not going to dip shit on his performance too much, but he did not need to be here. Unless if he's going to be in the third one he, he throughout is. the whole film, he did not need to be here. I mean, the most memorable thing that Channing Tatum did is when he cracked out his magic mic moves and he did some dancing in this movie. Pedro Pascal... <laughs> He's not the name and he's not what brought people to this movie like Channing Tatum was, but he should have been given top billing. He was a great performance in this movie and a great character. I think they cast this film with the poster in mind. Like, Pedro Pascal should have been on the poster. He was arguably the main character. He's the He was the statesman that was in it throughout yeah. rather than Channing Tatum who just went into deep freeze. Yeah. Arnold. It was almost the G.I. Joe 3 that we never received where Channing Tatum briefly comes back and then is murdered quite quickly again <laughs> and we don't see him for most of the movie. All oh, those G.I. Joe films are just the best, aren't they? Oh, who doesn't love a G.I. Joe movie? But yeah, I think Kingsman is definitely worth the watch. It's something that if you were a fan of the original, you're going to go to this and who knows, you may even enjoy it more. It's just because we're really critical and assholes really. But honestly, this is a film that you should invest your time and money in seeing. And I am glad that it is doing really well at the box office. Because yeah. it, it, while it's only earned like three million more than the first one did, I'm still glad that people are supporting it because this is 
a world and this is a franchise that I'd like to see more of because it is unique and it's a parody of Bond where the Bonds are just now too serious. I really like Kingsman. I never have a complaint with serious Bond, but I've got to admit, I would love to see a third Kingsman movie. And we can't get a third Kingsman movie unless people go see it. Ignore the Rotten Tomatoes score. It's a little bit justified, but really, you should just go and see this movie. You're going to have a lot of fun. And most of all, it's going to mean that you're not spending money on it. That's why now we're going to move on to our second review for Stephen King's It movie. I really enjoyed this film because it just came out of nowhere. Like the box office for this for for summer twenty seventeen was dire. Hardly yeah, anything the, made money. This is the worst summer box office in the past twenty five years, and it's really shocking. And then Stephen King just whips it out of nowhere with it, and everyone just everyone and their grandmas went to see this film. Yeah, it's a really quite shocking thing that this has done so well. This is a movie that's been able to beat. Deadpool for the biggest R-rated opening weekend in history and it did so well from a movie that I really didn't expect to be good Stephen King gave this book gave us this book years ago and we got the amazing really great 90s mini TV series and yet we got this film as well and it was just really really well done the cast of this film is superb like all the kids there is not a weak link and especially Georgie who I don't know how old he is, but he gave a brilliant performance and it was brutal when his arm was just ripped off. Yeah, the violence and the horror in this film cannot be understated. I personally was not scared by it, but dear Lord, can I see how people will be? This was a really quite shocking and really quite... How should I put it? While the Tim Curry performance is terrifying, what Bill Skarsgård is able to do here is really his own unique thing that is really quite horrifying yeah i agree it wasn't particularly scary and quite a few people have said that and it only had the one jump scare that properly worked but it's just a charming coming of age story yeah this was the sing street that we never got this is like a load of kids coming together in a time of adversity and they became the heart and soul of the film i did not come to care about bill skarsgård by the third act of this movie because i was so enthralled by what was happening in the kids' lives. Every single one of them is memorable. They've all got their own unique stories, and they've all been really, really well adapted from Stephen King's original book, which is a really great thing if you consider the child orgy at the end of it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that is something that didn't play in this movie, and it's great to see that some of the more poorer sections of King's books were removed for this movie. I think it was done really well. The story was tight. It did go on longer than I think it needed to, but I wasn't really complaining. I got time to see these kids, and they really were great. While I have complained about this movie receiving too much money, and that's a legitimate complaint, because, Jesus, other people need to get make money too. I just don't want Hollywood... I just don't want Hollywood to learn the wrong lessons from it, because... I don't want them to suddenly be like, right, everything now has to be R-rated because with the success of Deadpool as well, I, they need to know why it was successful. And like with Chapter 2 coming in 2019, I really wish, I know a few people have joked about it online, but I wish because I love this car so much that they would wait 27 years. It would be really fantastic to see them all come back one day, but we're never going to receive that. And 
it is a real shame because they are the shining factor of this movie. Because child actors usually really do not work. And to think that they got all these kids, and yes, while they have been in other things like Bill was in Midnight Special and... The Richie was, of course, in Stranger Things. And the Jewish one was in Guardians of the Galaxy. He was yeah, young he was Peter, Quill. Peter Quill. Which was great to see him come back, I must admit. The CGI in points was a bit unpolished. I disagree. I think the CGI in this film looked great. I think, oh, for the most part. It looked I think really every good. time he turned into one of those monsters, he looked absolutely terrifying. Even as the clown himself, he was scary. Apart from when he bit Georgie's arm. No, I think that looked great. Personally, the way his jaw looked, and not to mention the performance from Georgie himself, it all really made the scene come together. I think that it was a really gorgeous-looking film on that front. While I didn't like that he had to turn back into the clown every single time, just to remind you that it is Pennywise, I still believe that the char- the monsters he turned into, like the the leper, the headless creature, and the um, the woman from the painting, they all looked really scary, like, especially the leper, really quite Walking Dead, Greg Nicotero-esque, and yeah. they were all really engaging to see. Although I feel like it was good when he did turn into the clown because while before the projector scene I would have said yeah had different things for each kid but after they all saw Pennywise as the clown in the projector scene I feel like they should have only shown that because then all the all the children would be petrified of it yeah I completely agree the kids were clearly like horrified by this creature especially in what was for me the standout sequence in the bathroom where Beverly or Beaverly is really it's just like jesus that scene you get the hair bursting out of the sink you get the blood drenching the walls the original 1990 miniseries made that scene work as well but this made it the magnum opus of the movie it was absolutely sensational to see that scene i it was the one thing that i left the theater thinking how can i do that again myself and i would say beverly was probably my favorite character as sophia lillis's performance was just while the whole cast was superb and there wasn't a problem with any of them, Sophia Lillis was a real standout for me. Yeah, being the only girl in the cast is a clear challenge for that actress and she does it amazingly. She stands up to the boys, she fits in well with them as well. And some of the scenes, like the beginning moment where she's looking at the tampons, that's like a really uncomfortable scene for her, I'm sure, especially when the boys see her, but she just handles it so well. And the comic the comedic timing of her as well, it's actually really funny, especially in the scene where they all go swimming. She's just like, throws all the clothes off, and then just they're like, <gasps> and she just dives in. It made me find it really realistic and quite relatable almost in that sense, because that's probably how I'd react exactly. And also the, the adult performances were really good as well. Like Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise, the dancing clown. Well, it. He just brought something eerie and creepy and while he wasn't scary and had a really bad receding hairline (laughs) there was just something about him and his mannerisms and yeah he was actually really he was on the um conan recently and he said like talk show with conan recently and he discussed playing the opening scene with georgie with conan and he was saying about how he's tearing into georgie's arm he's traumatizing the poor kid and then what happens georgie just goes i like what you're doing here i think you're doing great i love what you're doing with the character and i think that's just absolutely amazing this cast was able to get on so well with one another even with bill 
like he's terrifying in this movie, but you can tell they had a lot of fun doing it. Also, Bill Skarsgård said on a different thing with Conan how he has that smile yeah, where his bottom lip really just goes yeah. forward. And he said how he used to petrify his little brother and chase him around with it. So just imagine his little brother watching this film. Obviously, yeah. he'll be a bit more grown up now. Yeah, I think Skarsgård really brought something interesting to the role. I feel the movie kind of, while it does live and die with the children, he is the cherry on the cake as such. He's really convincing as Pennywise. He really commits to the role. And you can really tell he's not borrowing from Tim Curry's performance. He's been able to put something out there that's really his own. He's been able to take his own unique stance on the character, of course, of Pennywise. And I think he's made something that really audiences are going to revisit. Because you can guarantee, as soon as we've got chapter two, we're going to get a Pennywise movie. It's going to be something that happens. Although Bill Skarsgård, unless they do a flashback sequence, which they probably will because of how good the kids are, Bill Skarsgård will be the only reoccurring cast member like, of the main cast to come back for the sequel. Yeah, and that's a cast member that I'm not angry to see come back. I think he was brilliant in it. And yeah, I absolutely loved him. Yeah, and if you had to have someone, he's by far one of the better choices to have. I find this film, it'll, it'll be like the quote that John Doe says in Seven, it'll be like, <laughs> it'll be mimicked and tried to be replicated for centuries. Just yeah, I think we're really going to start to see like more nostalgic horror movies like this because we've got the whole buzz with Stranger Things. We're going to get more horror films like this as the time comes. We're going to get more films like... I would not be surprised if we saw another Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. And of course we know there's another Halloween one coming. We're going to get more and more films like this where you've got these classic characters coming back, being played by brilliant new actors... And they're going to make a shit ton of money. This movie is doing absolutely amazingly. And that's not a bad thing. You should go and spend your money on other things. Mother needs some more money. Oh, Mother definitely needs money. <laughs> definitely needs money. That's why I'm angry that it is doing so well. But Although Mother is still in the top five, but that's because Kingsman and It are just raking in millions yeah. of it. And the other... Ninjago and Mother are just getting the scraps. Yeah, you can't deny it. But regardless, this is a movie that I feel... There's going to be some of you that are terrified by it. There's going to be some people that are not scared at all, but can see what we're talking about when it comes to the child actors in this film. And it's really something that I think you should invest your time because it's a hell of a long movie. Two hours and, what was it, ten minutes this film? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it really was worth it, though. And I'm excited to see what they do with Chapter 2. It's always the weaker half of the book. A lot of really bad scenes in that one, but... It will be interesting how they do it on the screen, especially given that it will be set in modern day times. And also, well, with it being in modern day times, it'll run in with last year's clown epidemic. <laughs> but I want to know who they cast because it, as the adult versions of the children, because they're really going to struggle to like, because the adults have big shoes to fill. Yeah, I think unless if we see some actors, like big name actors taking some really like kind of bold risks and appearing in a horror film like this, it we're not gonna receive a great movie at all. Like there's been rumours that Jessica Chastain will be I love playing Jessica Chastain Who can how can you not? Like there'll be rumours that she'll be playing the adult Beaverly and that'd be something really interesting to see because there is in the second chapter half of the book a domestic abuse storyline that Beaverly is going through Beverly, sorry. She's going through with her new husband and that kind of 
is what draws her going back to Derry Maine. And I'd love to see Jessica Chastain do something like that. It'd be great. And that's something that we need of the whole cast for the second part. Because if we've only got a great Bill Skarsgård, we're going to need some great new Losers Club members. I'd love Jake Gyllenhaal to be in there somewhere. (laughs) We can only dream, but we're not going to get Jake Gyllenhaal for this movie. I think It Chapter 2 could feature the likes of... I wouldn't be surprised if a Shailene Woodley popped up somewhere or a... Yeah, Maybe a Liam Hemsworth. Like, it's not something I want to see. A Hemsworth brother will probably be in there, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, it's not something that I'm desperate for, but but it's what it's likely to be. Regardless, though, this is still a film that you should really try and get out there and see. It's going to be out there all October. You can't deny it. I think this film has had some really, really clever marketing. Like, they've released The Sim September where they know it's going to do well. People are going to be desperate to see it. And they're just going to make this film run all the way into Halloween. And it's going to make an absolute killing. That's why number two is going to be so good. Because it's going to have so much money to use. I don't want the second one then to just throw loads of money at it, but then they get the wrong cast and so it doesn't resonate with audiences because the first one is has been so well received. I don't want them to just throw money at it and expect it to be really good. I expect it to do really well and then it just flop because Stephen King's on a winning streak at the moment. He dipped a bit with Dark Tower, yeah, but there's no denying that. especially with Netflix's 1922 coming out soon. Yeah, and Gerald's Game, which is actually out tomorrow, which is another film I will be potentially reviewing next week. And I'm extremely excited for what Stephen King is going to be bringing to the big set screen with some revisits to some of his work. It's going to be really cool to see what comes out of this. Me personally, I want to see Firestarter. I know it's going to be good. So yeah, that is our reviews this week for Kingsman, The Golden Circle, and It. We now move on to our other weekly segment, which is the quickfire question round. This is where one of us will have a pre-prepared question regarding the topic of film with a also pre-prepared answer. We will then propose this question to the other player, and they will have to try and come up with their own quickfire response and see if they can come up with an answer that is as good as the original player's answer. So to start this week, Jake has come up with the first question. So I propose the question. In honor of future classics like Logan and Mad Max Fury Road, that on their home releases have come out with black and white editions, I propose the question, what film that's in color should have a black and white edition? Oh, damn it, that's really... have, have you seen the... They usually do it on Halloween. Uh, Fox run the whole first series of Walking Dead in oh, black and white. Gosh, yeah. And it is beautiful. Like the series six opener where they have the flashbacks in yeah, black you, and white. I must admit, when they do shows or movies in black and white, I think it is something that's really quite special. It harkens back to these old days of cinema. And I think it really unlocks something in like, the film itself that we really don't get to see anymore. So and also, this is going to be a really fun question. Also, James Mangold, director of Logan, said, while the main film is in colour, they were focusing on how it would look in black and white, and that <coughs> then made them focus on composition and contrast, and it made, them, and it made the colour version look a lot better. Because black and white, while it doesn't work in everything, like, for example, La La Land and musicals, because they're very colourful, black and white can work really well like there's an interview series i think it's called interview with sam jones 
where he has celebrities in and they just have genuine conversations. It's not just like a chat show where they're just joking and trying to be this facade. They actually, it feels like you're listening in to a human conversation. And that's filmed in black and white. And the first video I watched of it, I thought this seems like a bit of a gimmick. It seems a bit artsy. But as you're watching it, you forget that it's in black and white because of how interesting the conversation is and how good the contrast is with how good the image quality looks as well. I, I, my, the answer that I'm going to propose is The Babadook. Oh, wow, that's actually, that's really good. Because that film works a lot with shadows and a lot of misdirection with, is there a monster? Is it just the grief? Is it just a hat on with a coat hanger? And so I feel that that film would really benefit from a black and white edition. Oh, God, you've given me quite possibly the hardest film to come up with a reaction to. Oh, God. Um, oh, no. Right, I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring, and I'm going to say 2014's Nightcrawler. I think this is a film that would that would look absolutely sensational in black and white. Um... I'm a massive fan of the original Psycho and the reason that it's so good is because Norman Bates is in black and white and Lou from Nightcrawler would look sensational in black and white. He would really see the crazy elements of that character and how great would it look to see in that scene where he screams in the mirror, how great would it look in black and white? That is a brilliant film. Like just Jake Gyllenhaal's performance alone, that, that's what first drew me to it and then seeing the slow the evolution of this character just becoming unhinged. Yeah, I think there's really no film like it, but to come back to your Babadook point, I don't think it would be served better by being in black and white. I think that's a film where it's already working with such a dark colour palette, you're really not going to be able to tell the difference. I think the scene where the old lady is watching her television, you can just see it behind her. There's going to be moments where you can't even see the Babadook, and one of the best things about that the Babadook is the moments where you do see that terrifying creature whereas I think with Nightcrawler I'm going to unlock something in the character that we haven't yet seen. But I just think of the scene where she's looking down the bed in her bedroom and then it just comes out with the hat and with yeah. the cloak and with everything and I feel that even if it's just certain scenes that are in black and white although it would be very jolting if yeah. if some scenes were in colour. Well, like I say that is a but... film with such a dense colour palette There'd be times where you really couldn't tell the difference. Although it's not a very colourful film to begin with. Yeah. Like, just... it is very dark. But I just... I'd be interested to see it in black and white. Because yeah, the Babadook definitely. itself is in black and white. So then we'd see almost the world, how he sees it. And then it would also give another sense of detachment from the mother. Because at first she's relatable, but then she just has this complete breakdown... Yeah. And it would add another layer of detachment from her. Yeah, it's quite interesting the fact where we pick two films where there are Oscar-winning performances that were both completely snubbed. And I'm going to concede, I think you've got the right film there. I think Babadook is definitely something that could work in black and white. But Nightcrawler is equally something I think could work, I think. Yeah. Especially some of those Hollywood shots at night. I've always said this is a film that is a time capsule for LA. It, it captures LA beautifully. And I think to harken back to those old LA noir style movies, you could really show that in Nightcrawler. Although with Nightcrawler, while I'd say that's a brilliant suggestion, 
I would say it would almost be interesting if it started off in colour and it was so subtly done throughout the scenes you don't notice it while it's happening yeah, but then it finishes really in black and white explore, so yeah. slowly it loses all its colour and desaturation yeah. until by the end of it it is black and white and then suddenly you're like oh when, when did this become black and white it would also be really interesting to see if you think in the final scene where he's he started his new company and then colour comes back to almost yeah. like reflect the innocence of his new employees and then as they're driving away make it just a little bit darker as you think they're starting to become more corrupt like they're really horrible boss now into another weekly segment that we're going to be doing it's called what's appertaining where we talk about what we're watching what we're reading what we're listening to and then what we're going to read watch and stuff in the next coming week that sort of thing so, Zach, what's appertaining? Well, recently I've dived in headfirst to the beginning of the Netflix original animated series, Bojack Horseman. It's Finally, I've been telling you to watch this for years. Yeah, I'm really starting to see where some of the potential is coming from. It looks really quite funny and really, really weird. It's got a little bit of that Rick and Morty-esque adult subtle comedy to it. and I'm really starting to enjoy it, what I'm seeing. Because the first series starts off quite strange and not really sure what's going on. But then, I think it's like episode five, it really hits its stride. And by episode eight, you're just entranced by this world that it creates. Yeah, it's a really stupidly beautiful show and I'm really enjoying getting into it. On the, um, also on the reading front, I have recently started in anticipation of Steven Spielberg's 2018 soon to be released ready player one i've dived into the book and i'm absolutely loving it i think ernest klein is a god among men what he has written here is absolutely brilliant and i can't wait to see it be pulled to the big screen it looks so good with books i started a while ago now but i'm not that much of a reader i started the ables two weeks ago um, Jeremy Scott's one from CinemaSins, and it is really promising. Yeah, I can remember reading this on release, and I loved it. The characters were brilliant, and honestly, I think the ending to that book, is, if it was put to film, it would be sensational. It leaves it on the... It's probably the best ambiguous ending I've ever read, or even seen for that matter. It's just sensationally well done. I won't spoil it, but you're going to enjoy it. And on the TV side of things... Uh, I've recently started True Detective Series 1 as well. Yes. <laughs> Finally, I've been wanting to watch this for ages. And the performances, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey are fantastic. Yeah, it really is a dark and just stoic set piece of television. It's absolutely sensational. The performances you get from these actors and the story itself is really engaging. That scene where he goes into the biker gang club and does the robbery it's just oh i was off my my seat i was just screaming at the television on the lighter side of things i've i started this weekend actually the new netflix series american vandal with, <laughs> with who drew the dicks and it is hilarious yeah this is something i've been desperate to watch recently i think it's going to be really great when i get around to it because we need more mockumentaries like this because these these documentaries are getting really serious and really heavy and it's just 
fun to have something light-hearted like always sunny in philadelphia did an episode where it mocks the documentary style and it was hilarious it's one of the best episodes of the whole series and i just it's like with the office i just love mockumentaries yeah you really can't get enough of those sort of shows i mean the office is an all-time classic and i think in time this is going to grow to be as well i can't wait to sink my teeth into this and so is what we do in the shadows by Taku Waititi. That is funny as well. Yeah. Good take on vampires. Yeah, I think Takai Waititi's got enough press. I don't think we need to be giving it any more. He's, <laughs> he's directing a Marvel movie. I think you've heard enough from him there. Hunt for the Wall of People is actually great. Hunt for the Wall of People is fantastic. One of my favourite films. So yeah, that's, I guess, really what's appertaining. So before we finish our first edition of the Sour Popcorn podcast... We're going to show you our last weekly segment, which is called Recommendation of the Week. This is where each of us, each week, will give a film or movie or television series that we feel everyone should watch. I'll be starting this week because Jake did the quickfire question. And the film that I'm going to recommend this week is Denis Villeneuve's 2013 epic Enemy. Jake Gyllenhaal gives an absolutely amazing performance in here as himself and as his subconscious, and Denis Villeneuve is able to bring us an absolutely mind-bendingly beautiful story about wrestling with our subconscious and what it means to be a married man. I think it's brilliant, and honestly, it's up there with his best works like Arrival and Sicario. In my opinion, it honestly exceeds Sicario. It's something that everyone should watch, and I can tell Jake is really going to enjoy. I just love the director, and this just makes me even more excited for Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner is a movie I cannot wait to see, especially now that Denis is doing it. Right, so now we've come to the end of our first edition of Sour Popcorn Podcast, and in the famous words of Charlie Brooker from his Weekly Wipe series at the end, I'm just going to say, go away. Dude, I don't mean to shatter your world right now, but there is a new Red Dead Redemption 2 trailer.